morning, friends. <clears throat> the older you get, the more you realize that uh, <clears throat> life has some significant challenges. When you are younger, um, you think those things are uh, abnormal, out of the ordinary, and you wonder why they're happening. But the older you get, you realize that maybe this is part of life. Turns out, it is part of life, in fact. And then you realize sometime in your 30s, maybe uh, mid-40s, that you're actually going to die someday. And this current struggle with how you feel seems to uh, continue. And realize that pain and sorrow, disease, the downward spiral, are all part of life. In fact, death is part of life. Isn't that an encouraging way to start a sermon, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're all going to die. You know, that's not the best way to start a sermon, I guess, but <clears throat> here we are. Um, what I want to ask you is, do you have a plan to face these things? What is your plan? Or are you just going to shoot from the hip and see how it goes when it happens? I, I wonder if it might be a better plan to have a plan. To know how you're going to humbly and patiently navigate these inevitable difficult times. Well, <clears throat> the text that we're going to look at today, I think is greatly, greatly encouraging, helpful, and actually, as we dissect it, we'll see that that God has a specific plan for us to adopt as we see these daunting circumstances as we look into our future. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, and I've been describing the day of adversity, if you faint in the day of diversity, your strength is small. You've wimped out. You haven't prepared. You haven't planned. I'm going to share with you today a great plan for these things that I learned from a man named John Flavel to prepare your life for these things. I hope that you'll pay attention no matter what your age. Um, if you're older, it's going to be easily easier to convince you to pay attention. Uh, if you're younger, uh, you may need some work of the Holy Spirit during the next 30 minutes to get your attention. But I hope all people in this room listen closely. Since Jesus was fully man, how was he able to sustain himself through this horrific trial, this torture, this persecution, this crucifixion that we've looked at over the past few months? How did he manage those things? Listen to Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open with me to that text. Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, 
And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Now here's where I want you to be attentive. Of course, I want you to be attentive the whole time, but particularly here. But he remained silent and made no answer. Remember who Jesus is. He remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. We're calling our present sermon series, which really is a sub-series of the Gospel of Mark, a theology of the cross. It's a topical look at what we can learn about God and ourselves within these last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Theology, of course, as you know, is a study of God. It's, and in this passage, we're seeing some amazing character qualities of God, particularly humility and patience. And I want to unpack these qualities a bit as we see them in the life of Jesus here in this moment and um, see if we can discover something that will make you worship him more and also be an encouragement to you as you face trials of your own. So Jesus' suffering was extreme, as we know, and yet he patiently and humbly endured it. Speaking about our Messiah, about our Savior, Isaiah the prophet said this in chapter 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now here's, here's an interesting side note, and I don't want you to get sidetracked by this side note, but it's interesting and worth noting, and I'm not going to spend any more time on it than this, and I, I say it just to kind of whet your appetite. Maybe you go dig it up yourselves and look at it because it's, it's encouraging, it's interesting. Here it is, the side note regarding Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffered in his three offices as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus suffered in his three offices as prophet, priest, and king. Listen. In his kingly office, the Roman soldiers crowned him with thorns and dressed him in purple and mockingly bowed and said to him, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked his kingship. Secondly, they mocked his prophetical office. They blindfolded him, as we saw here and just read in chapter 14 of Mark. They blindfolded him and told him to prophesy who hit him, mocking his prophetical office. In his priestly office, they threw insults at him when he hung on the cross. They said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Where is God now? Saying to his priestly office. But through it all, 
Jesus remained holy, unstained by sin, didn't complain, didn't curse, didn't threaten. He humbly and patiently suffered. It's remarkable. But let's look at this patience and humility of Jesus as seen in this text. In front of us, Mark 14, 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Remember, like I said, it, this is Jesus, the creator of all things, including the people who were mocking him, who had at his disposal unlimited power, legions of angels, anything he wanted, and he remained silent and did not give an answer. This superior intellect, which could have destroyed any argument, kept his mouth shut. And he humbly and patiently suffered for us. In his innocence, he quietly received incredible amounts of vitriol and cruelty with complete humility. N <laughs> knowing what he did, knowing who he was, he received all this intense unfairness. He exercised perfect patience towards those he could have evaporated with a thought. And so where did Jesus' patience and humility come from? I'm going to give you some ideas to, to increase your worship and then have you consider how you might follow his example. First of all, Jesus' patience and humility came from his perfect holiness. It came from his perfect holiness. We know that he was free from sin, able to exercise perfect patience and, patience and humility in every circumstance. That's not a description of us, is it? No. We struggle with sin. Jesus did not. If he had struggled with sin, as we do, he would not have been able to sustain his godly perspective, his behavior and attitudes that he did. Even Moses, who is said to be the humblest man who ever lived, failed in many ways, right? His, his rash speaking cost him dearly, as we know. But concerning Christ, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 7, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That is a description of our Savior. That is why he could have the humility and patience that he did. Secondly, his humility and patience came from infinite wisdom. Having access to infinite wisdom would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Especially when you're raising teenagers. How about any time in life? Wouldn't wisdom, infinite wisdom, be of value? Oh, boy. Colossians 2.3 says this, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus was filled with divine wisdom that controlled his passions. He wasn't a loose cannon that reacted with animal instincts to his circumstances. Mm -mm. His godly wisdom, wisdom processed everything that he faced, and his responses were filtered through infinite wisdom. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? Raise your hand. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works with meekness of wisdom. The humility of wisdom is shown in good works. 
The reason Jesus could deport himself the way he did was because of his infinite wisdom. The wiser you are, the more patient you are, the more humble you are. You never see a wise, impatient person, do you? No. The opposite of patience isn't impatience, it's anger. Anger arises out of impatience when our pride has been wounded and we lash out. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry anger lodges in the heart of fools. Thirdly, Jesus' patience and humility came from his foreknowledge. We may have some foreknowledge because of past experience, so it's not really foreknowledge. But like we know what to expect when we get to the dentist so we can prepare ourselves. Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. That's true foreknowledge before anything like that had ever happened. There were times in Jesus' earthly life where his human nature was surprised or unaware of certain things. But when it came to his purpose for being on earth, when it came to knowing what was going to happen to him, he was completely clear on it. He knew it beforehand. Which is why he was able to say to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was teaching that a year before it happened. Perfect foreknowledge. He had a perfectly clear understanding of the trials and sufferings that he would face. And so this foreknowledge prepared his heart, prepared his spirit and his mind to respond to those trying and difficult circumstances as he did. So if you go into a situation knowing what you'll face, you can prepare yourself on how to, how to react to what comes up. Listen to what Jesus knew about himself, written by Isaiah the prophet 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 50, verse 6, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus Christ, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And John 18, 4, in the garden, when Jesus was arrested, this is what took place. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Perfect foreknowledge might be helpful in how we react to traffic, right? Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Fourth, it came from his faith. His humility and patience came from his faith. Because of his perfect faith, Jesus was able to look past his sufferings to what they would accomplish, to their purpose. As dark as his experiences were, they produced a magnificent result, which was joyful glory. He could look past his, his difficult, painful, trying circumstances to the glory and joy that they would produce and survive them without sin. We read this in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He had faith. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 and 8, But the Lord God helps me, 
speaking of the Messiah again, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let's, let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Bring it on is basically what was in the heart of the Messiah, the mind of Messiah. The glory of God intended Jesus to receive was only to be received through his sufferings, and so he endured them so that he could receive them, the rewards, that is. He knew this because he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit planned the details of our redemption. They knew exactly what was going to happen. They planned it. So, while on earth in his physical body, he exercised faith in God to fulfill all that God had promised and planned. Fifthly, fifthly his, his humility and patience came from his heavenly perspective. I'm hoping that you're picking up here that this isn't just a description of Christ, but a description of what we ought to be, right? It came from his heavenly perspective. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul exhorts believers, human people, with the following. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on earthly things. God, in Christ, was able to do this perfectly set his mind on heavenly things, on, with a heavenly perspective. This is an elusive but critical element for producing peace in dire circumstances, keeping a heavenly perspective. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. How is the peace of God going to rule in your hearts? By keeping a heavenly perspective. That's how. And then finally, it came from his obedience. <clears throat> Jesus was able to demonstrate humility and patience because he was obedient. In submitting to the will of God, Jesus knew that God would sustain him through the things that he had commanded Jesus to fulfill. By the way, that principle, that truth remains. If God commands you to behave in a certain way, to think in a certain way, he'll sustain you through the trials accomplishing that. And this was the case with Jesus. Jesus' sufferings and death was the will of God, as we know, and obeying that will was the motivating factor to Jesus. Remember, he said this numerous times, I came to do the Father's will. Philippians 2, 7 and 8, you're familiar with this. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, there's that word humble, humility, by becoming obedient. Humility and obedience go together. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We learn such encouraging things about our Savior by examining stuff like this. Small sentences, but he remained silent and made no answer. So we dig into the theology of that and we learn wonderful things that, that bring our heart to worship, right? When we consider Christ. But, but the awe and worship that this brings is incomplete if we don't take one more step and see Jesus' patience and humility as a motivating example for us to follow. 
It's not enough to say, oh, praise and worship Christ. And then walk out the door and continue living how we were. God doesn't want that. God is not impressed with that. Sing all you want. Read all you want. Listen to all the sermons you want. If it doesn't affect your heart, God's not interested. So, our next step is point two. The patience and humility of Jesus' followers. That would be us. The patience and humility of Jesus' followers. The work of God in our lives is called sanctification. That is, God's a process of changing us from what we were to what we will be. The goal of sanctification, of course, is to produce the image of Jesus in us, to make us Christ-like, to be fully mature. How does this process happen specifically? Well, the Bible's not unclear of it. The Bible tells us that it is through trials and hardship that God accomplishes his purposes. Which is why we're commanded in the book of James, chapter 4, that we are to be joyful in trials because they train us to be like Jesus. We are to be joyful in trials. Consider it pure joy as a command from James when you encounter various trials. Why? Because they train us to be like Jesus. And Paul in Romans chapter 5 said something very similar. There he tells us that God uses hardships and trials to bring about the necessary changes in the lives of those that he is transforming. To produce godly character. So the questions that I began this sermon with are the ones that I now intend to answer. Our goal and destiny, in fact, according to Romans 8.29, is to become like Jesus. How are we going to do that? What's your plan? It must begin with 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. So follow me as I lay this out for you. Peter said this, For to this you have been called, Christian. This is what you've been called to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Yeah, follow in his steps of suffering. This is a normal part of life. Uncomfortable, but normal. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So, let's move through these things to determine what our plan is. How are we going to get there? How are we going to get to the point in our life where we react humbly where we react patiently, give glory to God by our actions and attitudes when we encounter difficult things that are inevitable. Here's the plan. First, look upwards. Look upward. This will remind us to be humble and patient as we look upward. What's that mean? It means to look Godward. If God is sovereign over your circumstances, what does that mean? What have you faced or will face does not come from fate or random chance. You've got to get that through your head. What you're going to face or what you have faced is not random. It's not bad luck. It's not fate. It's not unfortunate circumstances. They're designed by God upward to create certain things in your life. Patience and humility, for example. 
The Bible Bible clearly teaches that all things are under the wise and perfect control of God, sent from him to produce in us, his children, conformity to Christ. He perfectly and lovingly orchestrates the circumstances, our circumstances, to accomplish his purposes. So look upward. That's the first step in your plan. Look upward. What is God up to? The sooner you learn that, the better. Psalm 39, verse 9. The psalmist says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you, God, who have done it. Instead of complaining about our trying times, how about thanking him? Because he's up to something. He's transforming us into something that we cannot become without him. A.W. Tozer said this, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it, resol- it resolves a lot or a great deal of anxiety. What's your perspective when you face difficult things? Worry, grumbling, complaining, comparing, or this, resting, looking upward. Secondly, instead of looking upward or in, in, in addition to looking upward, look downward. This reminds us also to be humble and patient. Many times in the midst of our trials usually, uh, and our suffering, we're tempted to think that no one else is suffering like me. I mean, this has got to be a world record, you know, what I'm going through. The, the old black spiritual song, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, claims that Jesus is the only one to suffer as much as me. Looking downward helps fight that myopic perspective. Is there no one really even in your close circle of acquaintances that is suffering more than you? Don't even move beyond that, that close circle of acquaintances. Isn't there someone who's challenging you for first place? If you check just one click beyond that current circle of acquaintances, you'll see there are many whose circumstances make your situation look mild. Let's go and broaden that concentric circle one more step. In Hebrews 11, 36 and 37, others, speaking of believers, suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. You're not in first place, and neither am I. There are many whose sufferings and hardship outpace ours, aren't there? Yes. The Bible's full of illustrations of people that suffered in body and soul. Think of Job and King David, Jeremiah, Paul, Jesus, a host of others that I just referred to in Hebrews 11. Even look at people in contemporary Christian history and you'll quickly see that there are others who have suffered or are suffering more than you. Yeah, look downward. Next, look inward. Remember, this is a plan for you. I'm I'm trying to help you with a plan. Look inward. This also reminds us to be humble and patient. By looking inward, let me ask you something very simple. Are there still some unsanctified parts of your life? 
Or are you pretty much there? Have you arrived? How are you going to get to those nooks and crannies in your heart that you may not even know exist, that need to be sanctified? There's only one way. The only way to eliminate certain pests is through a hard winter, right? We know that, living in this area. Hard winters are good. They eliminate bad things. That is, hard winters do. The only way to eliminate stubborn sins and entangling things is through hard trials. How are we going to see pride die in us? Isn't it through humbling circumstances? You know, you thought you were the perfect parent until your kids leave home. How is God going to address our carnal, backsliding hearts? It's by taking us to places that require us to call out to him. We need God to send difficulties our way throughout our Christian life. Otherwise, even as Christians, we remain self-sufficient, self-content, and self-consumed. Even as Christians. God must act. He must do these things. Because we won't do them. We're too much addicted to comfort. 1 Peter 1.6, In this, speaking of trials, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, he throws that in there for people who wonder if it's necessary, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Not only does God bring trials our way to kill remaining sin and wrong allegiances, But he also sends them to stir up our faith. They're not just to tamp down sin, they're to encourage your faith. Romans 5, 3, and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, here's the building up of the faith. What does it produce? Endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It builds up your faith. Trials do. So suffering presses down sin while stirring up faith. Fourthly, the next step in this plan is to look outward, which reminds us to be humble and patient. Who's out there, Christian friend, who's out there who's watching you? I guarantee your kids are, your grandkids. They're watching. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child or coworker. Maybe it's someone in your small group. Someone's watching. They're watching how you're responding to your circumstances, your trials, your hardship. We claim certain things as Christians. We sing certain songs. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Well, there's there's people around us watching. You remember that the behavior of the Israelites shamed the name of God to the surrounding people groups. We read in Isaiah, the name of God is blasphemed because of you. We don't want that to be the case with us. Look outward. Fifth, look backward. This reminds us also to be humble and patient. What does your personal history teach you about God's care for your soul, God's care for your life? What's God's faithfulness do for us or has done for us in our suffering? Did God abandon you the last time you went through something hard? 
Look backwards. If not, you can rest in him again. He's pulled through for everyone who's trusted in him. You can be humble and patient during your current trial because he sustained me in the past. This is what we sang. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Have you? If so, then you can trust him tomorrow. Right? You've proved him. We just sang it. That's got to be true. We sang it. Right? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3. This is favorite verses to many of you. But this I call to mind. I remember my history, and therefore I have hope because of my history. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Look backward. Next, look forward. You knew that was coming? Forward. This also reminds us to be humble and patient by looking forward. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, look past your trials. This is kind of like faith. Look past your trials to the other side, what they're supposed to be accomplishing. Look to the end result. This is how we get through difficulty even today, isn't it? I can go to the dentist because in two hours my tooth will stop aching. Look forward. 1 Peter 5.10. Listen to how Peter encouraged his readers to look forward. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. That's what's coming. You can get through it with humility and patience. And here's one of my favorite passages from 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction, I love those words, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. Our sufferings, our pain, our sorrow is transient. Soon one day they will be behind us. The things that are seen, unseen, are eternal. And seventh, look to the left. This also reminds us to be humble and patient. Sadly, as we look to the left, we'll see some who haven't fared too well in this matter, those who claim Christ, um, but spend their trials complaining about them instead of rejoicing in them. Look to the left. I'm sorry if your husband's sitting at your left. Um, we see to the left bad examples, but that even is a motivation to move in the opposite direction. And then finally, look to the right. Look to the right. Be observant of other believers who have, in fact, endured admirably. We know some, don't we? Some are in this room right now. Brothers and sisters who have demonstrated 
godly humility, godly patience. Through severe trial, we have them with us. Look to the right, be observant. Notice the patience and humility displayed by someone who has gone through a great deal of suffering and proven their faith to be genuine. Look to the right. What a blessing God has for us in our church. We have people that we can go to and say, how did you do it? <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that the things you've heard this morning will be in their answer. That's how. Following the example of Christ, who remained silent and made no answer. What a theology of the cross that is for us. We're going to serve you the Lord's Supper today, as is our practice on the first Sunday of the month. And what a, a wonderful thing to keep in mind as we remember the Lord Jesus through taking of the elements. We have here a description of a, two character qualities that are so encouraging and so much so that it brings us to worship the patience, patience and humility of Jesus. What a blessing. I want you, as you prepare your hearts now, to be served the elements of the Lord's Supper, the broken bread, the, the juice, reminding us of his broken body and spilt blood. Remember the patience and humility of Jesus. Examine your own life. And if you, if you come up short, run down the aisle. <laughs> and receive the spiritual encouragement intended by these elements. I'm going to pray for these things and ask that, that the elders who are going to help me uh, come during that prayer. Um, and let me read the words of institution first from 1 Corinthians 11, um, verses 23 and forward. 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord, the Apostle Paul said, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Father, we are humbled just by observing the humility and patience of Christ. We, our impatience is put on display when we consider the perfection of Christ that we've seen this morning. We, first of all, acknowledge our sin and, and reach out to you for forgiveness and encouragement. And then we thank you for providing the elements of the Lord's Supper to, in fact, encourage our souls, encourage our minds, encourage our hearts to run to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith who, for the joy set before him, endured all these things. For it was Christ's example that we've studied this morning. These things are 
what Jesus would have us do and be. So, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his example. We thank you for his person and his work. Bless us now, Holy Spirit, as we come in faith to these elements, expecting, believing that you are here with us, serving them to us. You are our unseen host. Bless us now as we come together. In Jesus' name, amen.